Welcome to Connect the Dots, the podcast that is inspired by you, the advisor, and aims to foster better outcomes for you, your business, and your clients. I'm your host, Georgina Smith. Today's episode is not to be missed as we explore the fascinating intersection of technology and financial advice. We have a captivating webinar lined up, delving into the role of artificial intelligence in the financial advice industry. In this webinar, we'll be joined by two distinguished guests who are experts in their fields. Michael Summerton, Head of Proposition at Innate Investment Platform, and Professor Johan Stein, a leading authority in finance and AI integration. Together, they will explore how to strike the perfect balance between automation and personalization in the financial advice space. Let's connect the dots together. So our objective today is primarily to learn, uh, you know, seek to understand a bit more about the topic and also make it a bit more tangible for our advisors out there. And so we've uh, sort of bucketed today's discussion into four big categories. So first, Johan, you mentioned demystify. You know, what do we mean when we say AI? Uh, We're going to disaggregate the topic of AI, disaggregate into a number of different sort of broad categories. Um, You know, let's just throw out some terms there, machine learning, natural language processing, computer vision, robotics and expert systems. We'll probably spend a bit more time on the natural language processing. That's where sort of the current hype is around AI. And then we're certainly going to dispel some myths. You know, what is it not? What are the real risks and what should we not be afraid of? And then, you know, we're going to deliberate and decipher and decide, you know, where can this be um, with the help of a bit of poetic license there? Where can this be applicable for advisors in their business? And uh, so so quite a broad topic, um, but let's let's dive in. And, and maybe, Johan, just to start to demystify this topic, what do we really mean when we say AI or artificial intelligence? Mike, I think if you ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different answers. Um, our view on the technology has been greatly influenced by Hollywood movies, killer robots taking over our cities, uh, taking over our jobs. You know, on the one hand, it's the most powerful technology we humans have ever created, but it's not nearly as smart yet as most people think it is. About a year ago, my father asked me, what is this AI stuff that I do? And, um, and he's a smart man, but he's not a technologist. And I really struggled to explain it because, you know, we are so used to our kind of tech lingo and IoT and cloud and stuff that it really challenged me to 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 drum it down. And um, I've got a simple little way of explaining it to people. Um, and I think a better word is non-human intelligence than artificial intelligence. And I often speak about smart technology or the smart technology era because artificial intelligence really makes it sound so, so weird for, for many of us. Um, and, and what I do, and this is what I figured out when I had to answer my dad, and I think it'll help our delegates as well, is I say, or I tell the story, you know, when we as humans do work, there are four main things that we do. On the one hand, we can see and we can read. So we can read an email, a client um, kind of inquiry and instruction, and we can understand what it means. And then secondly, we can execute on that inquiry. We can actually do the work, send the email, send the quote and so forth. Thirdly, we have the ability to understand language but not just English or Zulu or Afrikaans. We can also understand the nuances, whether somebody is frustrated, whether they are honest or dishonest. We can pick up some of those things in in the way people speak. And then fourthly, we have the ability to learn. We keep on learning through our mistakes, 
from from new information, from courses that we're doing. And then I say it's AI has the ability to mimic human work in those four categories. On the one hand, it can see, and there we speak about computer vision. If we think about self-driving cars, if we think of optical character recognition, drawing insights from documents. Um, secondly, it can also um, execute tasks. And here we talk about robotic process automation, intelligent or hyper automation is the kind of the thing we talk about these days, mainly focused on you know, kind of back office, repetitive administrative tasks. We these algorithms are getting so much better at understanding human language, producing human language, understanding nuances. It's, there's a big play in contact centers, for instance, to un pick up what a customer is really trying to say and their levels of frustration, for instance. And then, of course, learning. And we're going to touch on machine learning, but it's the ability for these algorithms using large data sets to keep on looking at patterns, learning and doing things better and better. So it's non-human intelligence. It's essentially computer code and, and algorithms. And it's not nearly as smart as humans in many aspects. It's very limited at this stage. And I think the, the question of the future is how much more smart will it get? Will it become equally smart than humans? Will it become exponential, um, you know, much more smarter than humans? And what kind of world will that leave us with? So that was a mouthful. It's the ability to do the simple tasks that humans can do at the moment. Um, I think hopefully that answers the question, Mike. Absolutely, sure. So, so um, just to make it practical, you know, where would we as sort of average everyday citizens have encountered AR in our day to day to, without even knowing it? Primarily on your smartphone. Um, almost, if not every application that you use is infused with artificial intelligence, pattern recognition and the like. If you use Google Maps or Waze, um, it's artificial intelligence driven. Your social media feeds, uh, your online banking, everything we do from a, from a mobile phone, smartphone point of view. But most of the interactions we have with our banks, our telco providers, our insurance providers, um, are somewhere or another infused with it. It's almost as prevalent as electricity, which is a funny thing to say in our country because we, you know, I, I think we are still in the second industrial revolution where, you know, we had to start producing and, and distributing electricity. But it is everywhere. Um, you know, just using the internet. I mean, this call that we're doing now on Zoom is infused by elements of artificial intelligence. So it is everywhere. And most of us have smart devices in our homes, smart speakers. Uh, you even have kid fridges who can order and replenish stock you know, in some homes, security systems, facial recognition cameras. I think it's almost everywhere already, even though we don't always know it. And that's also a bit scary, I think. Okay, so so I guess it's nothing new. It's been around for a while, but there seems to be this sort of re a lot of hype at the moment. And it was it was very much around the launch of of chat GPT uh, only a few short months ago. And and maybe we could just dive into uh, you know what is GPT? It seems like you know, when I think of rollerblades, uh, you call all inline skates rollerblades, but actually rollerblades was it was a brand that became sort of a name for a whole category of things. Um, so maybe we could like like what is ChatGPT? Just to maybe step back a bit, uh, Mike, and, and on your comment, it's been around for a while. I mean, it's been around for about sixty or so odd years. This idea of artificially intelligent systems. 
Some of you might have heard of the Turing test, you know, Alan Turing from the Second World War. And the Turing test is essentially if you are um, interacting with a non-human entity without knowing it's not a human, then essentially it has passed the Turing test, which is happening these days more and more. And it's so human-like. Um, and again, contact centers are, are often a great example in some cases. ChatGPT really, I think, brought AI front and center to a lot of people who are not in technology or technologists. Now, GPT means generative pre-trained transformer model. It's a big term, but it's essentially the ability for these algorithms to very quickly and often very effectively scrape as much information on the internet as possible to determine the best answer to your query. Now, these, I mean, we can also talk here about large language models. Now, OpenAI with ChatGPT were definitely not the first. There were many such models in existence already. But I think they just got it right at the right time, you know, launching it in, in November, making it open for everyone to use. And they were very smart in doing it because how did these models learn? It's by millions and millions of people using it. And then, you know, I think it was in Jan when or Feb when they launched GTP4, which is a, a multimodal model it's still not that good i think from ingesting pictures and large documents uh, or even videos or audio files but there are a multitude of other large language models free most of them out there for us to use and a lot of them are focused on very specific tasks some for instance will focus only on legal documents looking at you know ingesting a 300 page non-disclosure agreement and it will pick up the main trends things to look out for and so forth and we often speak about perimeters and, and the, the easy way for me to explain it it's almost like an octopus with tentacles and a perimeter is the amount of tentacles that these large language models have to take the information that's out there and to form a answer to your question now gtp3 at about 175 billion perimeters. And we reckon that GTP4 have about a trillion perimeters. So it's the ability and the speed of scraping this information. The challenge here is, remember, if all of us who have been browsing the internet, there's a lot of good stuff and useful stuff out there, but there's so much nonsense. And these large language models use unregulated information on the internet. This is where the problem of biases, discrimination, et cetera, can come in. Although a lot of these platforms have been doing a lot to make sure that we don't receive racist or sexist kind of answers, but sometimes you do get it. And one example I want to use, um, OpenAI's other platform is called DAL-E. And again, there are a myriad of these, which are text to image platforms. So you, you say uh, as a prompt, draw a painting in the style of Van Gogh of a leadership team. And it will think a little bit and the images it produces are amazing. But any role that has traditionally been associated um, from a male dominance point of view, like leadership, will produce mostly male and uh, Caucasian looking images, which is a, a challenge. Um, if you ask it to draw a picture of a family, it will mostly be of a man and a woman and a child or children. But a family is also a single parent or a same sex uh, couple. Uh, or a childless couple family. So I think that's just the challenge. There's so much promise that these perimeters can find all this information. It's unregulated. And that's why it still needs us as humans to review and to use our own common sense and judgment 
based on the information that we have received from these large language models. The business use are potentially incredible. I'm sure we'll unpack that as we go further in this conversation, Mike. Uh, thanks, Johansh. So I guess if I think back to, sure, maybe giving away my age a bit here, but you know, first year varsity, doing a bit of first year computer science, uh, you, you had to know a bit of coding to engage with the computing power of a personal computer. And and so it was, you know, C sharp or whatever it is. And these days there's things like Python, which make it much easier to engage with with software. And I guess what things like ChatGPT and other large language models have done is they've sort of leveled the playing field is that you no longer need to know any sort of coding language to be able to get really powerful results and computing power at your disposal. And perhaps that's part of why there's a lot of hype around this, because you've got the sort of creativity of humanity engaging with the computing power of, of all these different systems. Absolutely. And, and, and again, it will not replace what only humans can do. And I think we'll touch on this theme over and over. And I think for everyone on the call, that question should linger is where do I use the technology that's very good at certain things? And what's the balance between me as a person with uh, experience, with insights, with intuition, especially when it comes to um, the financial well-being of other people? You know, I often say if, if I wake up tomorrow and my bank account has been hacked, I don't want to chat to a chatbot or a contact center agent. I will drive to the branch and not leave until I've spoken to the manager and they've sorted it out because it's so close to my skin. Healthcare even more so. I mean, if, if a hospital uses an automated decisioning system to determine when my sick son can see a doctor, now it's no longer almost this armchair philosophizing about technology. It's becoming more and more real life applicable. But, but you are right, it is, it's leveling the playing field. We speak about democratizing AI or, or data sets. But I would still want an experienced coder to write a program. He or she might use elements of ChatGPT to help them with code reviews and the like. But I think these systems can still not duplicate human experience and expertise. So yeah. that's a fine balance. And, and I think the challenge for us is where should we focus our expertise and what should we let the algorithms do that it can do better than us? A, a great example of... I guess, a combination of machine learning. So the famous example of machine learning is where they taught the computer to recognize whether a picture is a cat or not. You know, is this a cat? No. Is this a cat? Yes. And after a while, it became very good at identifying cats. Now, they've obviously transformed this over the years. And you now have expert systems which can look at pictures of potential uh, malignant tumors on people's skin, and they can, with a high probability of success, um, predict whether that's going to be cancerous or not. You can then take you know, that really high accuracy through machine learning, because they feed literally thousands of images which are tagged, you know, either cancerous or not, into the system. They can then, off the back of that, build expert systems, which and a good example in the medical field is optimizing treatment plans using the patient's own personal circumstances and a whole lot of data on how effective uh, the various drugs are in different circumstances to curate that optimal treatment plan for the patient with obviously great outcomes for them. And it takes a lot of the sort of mundane work off of the specialists, the doctors, et cetera. And so that's a good example of an expert system, which is a hybrid of human and AI. And working together. 
Absolutely. And, you know, for me, machine learning, the, the best way to explain it is it's the ability to see patterns in large data sets that we as humans are just not able to see. Um, and if you think of, of, of your client base, I mean, what are the spending patterns? What are the behavioral analytics that you can see in how they spend, how they buy and so forth? But to use it more than just looking at historical data, but looking at predictive analytics, so based on a spending behavior, but also based on external factors like, um, you know, last year, July, when we had those horrible things happening in KwaZulu-Natal, we look at um, weather patterns, natural disasters, if we look at uh, larger economic situations, to almost put that on top of all this data we have on our clients and to very accurately start preempting and predicting their needs. And that's where that's, this novelty kind of conversation comes in. I mean, we all hate it when a contact center agent phones us because it's mostly about gym membership and insurance. And um, I feel sorry for them. And I try to be very nice because they're doing a job. You know, they have to make two or 300 outbound calls a day, but they often are not empowered with the right data. So the, the pitch they make to me and to many of us on this webinar are often so irrelevant that we get frustrated um, by it. But if you can phone me, say for instance, my bank phones me with a product that is 100% suited to my needs, but I did not even know that kind of a product exists. Imagine how much better that call will go. I would actually be happy that they've called me. But most of the calls I get from my bank, like us on this webinar, are based on static data. It's not relevant to me. It's a one-size-fits-all, throwing mud against the wall and see what sticks. In the age of big data for large and small firms, we no longer have that excuse not to give hyper-personalized, effective, predictive advice and and product um, solutions to our clients anymore. So that's a great segue into, and, and we're going to talk a bit more about some of the practical use cases in sort of the advisor world. Um, but before we jump into that, maybe we can just dispel some of the sort of myths and, and cover some of the real risks around sort of artificial intelligence and some of the things we've been talking about. It's um, we, we These days we talk all the last few years about artificial narrow intelligence, which means it's very good at some narrow tasks, repetitive tasks. Um, and I'll give you some examples. The next era we're going into, and, and we all are having philosophical conversations, is it in five years or 10 years or more? It's called artificial general intelligence, which is when it's no longer narrow tasks. In fact, it could mimic and do better pretty much all the jobs we are doing at the moment. And then following that will be what we call super intelligence or the singularity, which is a real doomsday scenario, which might be only in our children or their children's lifetime. But I think some of the myths are around how powerful this technology really is. You know, I've had clients who think that you just plug and play, you just install it and it will solve your process problems, for instance, <laughs> and it won't. And because it's exponentially powerful technology, you know, whatever basis you have when you start using it, especially when your data is not in one location, the quality of your data is poor, um, it will just exponentially amplify the, the troubles you already have. So there's really this step back and just make sure that before we even look at AI, that we're doing the basics right. You know, it can't fix a toxic work culture, a lack of leadership. People who fear for their jobs or misunderstand their jobs 
Um, people who are not good at speaking with customers. Yes, it can do a lot in helping us having that data, giving good advice and so forth. But it is definitely not a silver bullet. It definitely will not fix most of your business problems. In fact, over the last few years, I have solved more business problems with Excel and some uh, rudimentary process automation, not even looking at or getting near artificial intelligence. You know, I think some of the challenges we have, uh, Mike, is that this technology is not regulated anywhere in the world. The European Union has made some big strides. I think just recently there was a lot of press around it um, that they are codifying and putting into law certain regulatory frameworks. The US seems to be doing it as well. Sadly, in, in South Africa, we have absolutely nothing. Yes, we've got privacy in this form of POPIA, which is quite good um, from an international standards point of view, but we have no regulation around the ethics of AI. What kind of data can you use on a client? What kind of predictive modeling can you use? And importantly, the biases in our data sets against minority groups, certain genders, and so forth. So that is really a, a troublesome thing, the fact that our government is not doing anything about it. And it's not just government. Of course, we all should work together. Um, it's a societal responsibility. It's a business responsibility. You know, but we, October last year, Two years before that, we had the Presidential Commission on the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and their report was really world-class. They, they made eight or nine recommendations, and one of them is the regulatory frameworks. And now we are two and a half years later and nothing. I mean, we, we're struggling to keep the lights on. I don't know if our government have the ability sadly, to look at regulatory frameworks. A lot of businesses are looking at their own internal regulatory frameworks from a responsible data use point of view. You know, for even Popia says that we can't, as many of you know, you can't use the data for purposes other than what your clients gave you permission to do. I, I, the risk and the, almost the temptation here is that we are harvesting so much data on our clients that it's very tempting to use that data from a modeling and from a predictive analytics point of view, other than what we had permission to use it for, to upsell and cross-sell. And one example that I often think about, you know, I get my, like all of us, when you, when you make a transaction, when you swipe your card, you get an SMS that will tell you you've just spent this money. It's great. If, if, if you didn't do it, you can immediately call your bank. Somebody's using my card. But those SMSs are going through my mobile network and their computers. So even though my mobile provider cannot access my bank account, they are essentially seeing all my financial transactions and it's produced as SMSs. Now imagine what they can do with that knowledge to upsell their own financial services to me. And I think that's a challenge. On the one hand, Mike, it's not that powerful, definitely can't solve most of the business problems we currently deal with. But the idea of ethics and responsibility in the lack of regulatory frameworks is becoming more and more of a, of a big issue. Absolutely. And Johan, so sort of making it a bit more practical with some of the things to watch out for, and, and we've sort of used large language models as an example. And while something like ChatGPT may be really good at summarizing, you know, large pieces of text, uh, you mentioned inferring sentiment, for example, in customer reviews, uh, transforming big uh, texts into something else, correcting grammar and that sort, uh, or even automate 
automating the writing of emails, um, it's it's not very good. In fact, it's terrible at some things. Uh, and often, like one thing is the truth. You know, you can't. All, you, don't, you shouldn't expect the truth from large language models because that's that's not what they're trying to give you. For example, you know, if you asked it, "What is the capital of France?" It, it might give you back the the answer, "What is the capital of Portugal?" Because that's the most likely answer based on its data. So I guess the things to be wary and aware of is when engaging with large language models, for that example, is that you have to understand what you're asking and then also go and double check what you've been given. So oftentimes it's a bit like a like a well-meaning child. It wants to make you satisfied. And, um, and so I guess, particularly when you're sort of dealing with uh, investments and advice, you want to be quite precise with the information. So large language models for now may not be the answer to all of your questions. Uh, and if we fast forward into the future, lots of companies are developing their own sort of in-house generative pre-trained models. And so you could, for example, have a beautifully uh, sort of constructed database, which you can query on policy, on um, investment uh, information, on your on your own client data for your specific use case. So I think there's there's lots of opportunity here. But for now, it, one should be very careful when using uh, large language models. Because it's still very limited. And again, it's all about how you prompt it. And we can touch on that a bit. But again, it uses unregulated information on the internet. Now, it might be 80 or 90% accurate and ethical. So the, the, it does help. But it does not replace the human with experience to review the answers because sometimes it really does get it wrong. And another concern with with something like ChatGPT, I mean, if you take a, a spreadsheet, and, and I mean, there's a lot of fun to play with this, these large language models. But if you copy and paste the spreadsheet into it, um, and that could be, for instance, your customer spending patterns, and you ask it for an analysis, I'm, I'm quite blown away by how very high level summarized, it gives very accurate trends and things to look for. But the moment I put all of that data into ChatGPT and I press enter, the question is, where does the data go? From a, from a not just a regulatory compliance or, or privacy point of view, because this is now personally identifiable information that I put into it, because it goes to the cloud, it goes to Silicon Valley. And we had a problem about a month ago where ChatGPT started revealing some of their clients' names and some of their clients' banking details. They shut it down very quickly, but these things can happen. And that brings us to what you've mentioned, Mike, where internal ring-fenced large language models seems to be what a lot of banks and insurance companies and telcos and others are busy building. So in other words, we can only use the data that we have. It's secure, it can't leak. Uh, somebody from the outside can't use it, but we essentially are moving from questions or search to answers. And, and I'll, I'll give you some business examples, but you know we have this battle between Google and Microsoft at the moment with Microsoft with their more than $10 billion investment in open AI. And if you're a Bing user on your mobile phone and, and some of us already on our browsers, you actually see two parts of the screen. And then Google is starting to roll this out with Bard as well. Because think of it, if you do a, a search, you don't really get the answer. You essentially get homework because the, the search engine will give you, and very accurately, the most probable websites that will contain the information you're looking for. But you're not answering my question, you're giving me sites to go and click on and dig into and see. So if I say, what's the weather like tomorrow, I'll most likely find news24 and weather.com, et cetera. But tell me, give me the answer. 
And I'm, and being at the moment, and I think Google will start rolling out more and more, is on the one end of the screen, you'll get your probable links, but it will also attempt to answer the question. Now, an example I like to use, if you think of an internal large language model, and especially the, the larger firms, you know, some of the large consulting firms that I've worked for, say, for instance, I want to take paternity leave in October. Now I need to do a lot of homework. I first need to find the leave policy. What is the company's leave policy? I need to look at the labor law. The labor law, for instance, might say five days. I need to look at my leave schedule. How much leave will I have by that time? And what kind of leave might I lose if I don't take it in time? What are the public holidays around those times? And also, have I been booked on any projects around that time? So I need to go to six or seven platforms. It'll take me a few hours where I wish I could just get an answer. Now, a large language model should use all the platforms I've just mentioned. And the ideal answer would be, yes, you can take paternity leave in October. Uh, five days is the law. The company will give you another two days. Remember that there's one public holiday in that time. If you don't take leave before then, you'll have another five days. But also remember, you've already been booked on projects with customer X and Y. Speak to your line managers. In other words, just give me an answer. Don't give me homework. Now imagine working, advising a client and all the different data sets available on that client. You can ask this large language model to give you a meaningful answer and you don't have to go through all of these spreadsheets and systems. So I think that's where we will start seeing a lot more use of these models. Ring fence, secure, it's not going out to Silicon Valley. And that's an important thing. So even for, for people on the call, play around with ChatGPT, and we'll talk about some of the prompting. But be careful with the information you put in there, especially if it is against privacy compliance, because you don't know where that information is going and who might be using it for other purposes. So that's really important. Anonymize that data. Um, look at some of the trends in the spreadsheet. You mentioned content creation. It's really, I think, good at that. You know, for instance, if you if you ask it to analyze a spreadsheet, Mike, and I'll almost be done with this answer because I can go on forever. I love it. If you say, explain it like you would to a child, like you've referred to. So I use the anonymized data sets of employees, start date, end date, gender, salary, and so forth level. And it, as a child, it would say there are more boys than girls in this company. And that's not always a good thing. And then it starts explaining it. Then I asked it to answer me as a narcissist. And it will give you an answer like, I'm the only person in the world who can answer this question. You can only listen to me. Then I asked it to answer it to me in Afrikaans, which because I'm Afrikaans, it was factually and grammatically accurate. Then I used Google Translate. I asked for is Zulu and Tosa. Asked for Hebrew, it started all Arabic, writing from the right to the left. It was amazing. But that's fun to play with. I think what we're grappling with is how do I use it as a business owner, despite all these privacy concerns and stuff. So, Johan, so you just sparked a thought there. Um, in, in doing some research for this uh, this discussion, I listened to a, a session last week, which, which Jordan Peterson hosted on specifically around chat GPT. And he had he had two sort of real main insights uh, with his guest at the time. The one was that in his engagement, the research capability is, in his estimation, was around about a PhD student level. So you're getting sort of high quality level of ability to research things uh, using large language models. And then this is the, ins the interesting insight for me was he said w when you get original thinkers, like truly original thinkers, they're obvious. They're often experts in sort of multiple different domains. And I think the example he used was 
uh, marble sculpting, um, ancient Greek mythology, and sort of theology of Christianity, sort of making connections between three seemingly very disparate topics. And with large language models and the computing power we have today, you have the ability to go really deep on almost any subject and also really broad across many. And so that was the fascinating thing for me. You've got this unparalleled level of research ability and the ability to make connections, sort of your possibilities are endless. So I guess um, I'm, I'm trying to make it practical for advisors and and some of their sort of time sinks, which which they experience on a weekly basis is one of them is client meetings, high value add, but also you want to personalize those. So how, how do they get to know more about their clients and potentially the actions that come off of a client meeting, like summarizing the minutes, making sure you track all the actions, potentially going off and reviewing some portfolio performance, you know, how can, and let's not call it AI, but how can software or, or tech help us save ourselves time so we can do more client meetings and less of the admin stuff? Yeah, I think in all jobs, especially client-facing jobs, we need to ask ourselves, you know, if you, if you just high level, if you draw yourself a, a image or a pie chart, firstly, where am I currently, what am I currently spending time on? What is taking up most of my time? And then uh, a second image or picture on in an ideal world, where would I like to spend most of my time on doing? And it's often two disparate kind of pictures. Mm-hmm. So think of the, I, I often speak about taking the robot out of the human. Because they're, they're, again, what are the things that you as a human uh, experienced professional and an advisor are good at? It's based on experience. It's based on a, a knowledge of your customer. And it's that ability to look somebody in the face with empathy and to guide them, almost to handhold them. You can't AI that. But setting up meetings, following up actions, looking at documents, etc. I'm not saying that's not important, but let the algorithms do most of the heavy lifting. You as a human will still have to double check and review it. But just think, start at the most basic level of repetitive, mundane, administrative kind of tasks. Those are very easily automatable. Now, that could, for instance, be you receive a document that you need to analyze. And there's certain key actions from that document. That software can already do for you. You can just double check it maybe, but you don't have to read through the 40 pages. The reminder of, I need to send an email to this person and ask that thing based on the one thing in this document. I need to double check if this information is right in another system. So accessing different systems is already very automatable if you set it up correctly. Even the idea of setting up meetings with clients, you can automate to a large extent because you know, if you can, you, the system will know where you are based and given the geography of your client, how much travel time there will be. Imagine you can pull in a Google that kind of the traffic information to know generally at eight o'clock to get to Rosebank from where I live is 40 minutes longer, et cetera, et cetera. So you can automate the decisioning around your availability so that the system can look at your calendar and there's certain days and times that you could have opened up to say, these are the days I want to see clients. It can also prioritize the clients that you need to see. Again, you can double check that. And then it can ping those clients. And we can talk here about multiple methods. It could be a WhatsApp message or an SMS or an email saying, love to come and see you. Here's a summary of why. Here are four slots. Click on the one that suits you best. And then it auto fills and blocks your diary. 
again, that technology already exists. So just again, think of what are the most important things to spend your time on? And what are the things that you wish an assistant or a computer could do for you? And you approach it in that way. And start with the most simple things, even if it is just looking at documents for accuracy. That's a great start. You don't have to AI or automate your whole business. Look at the little things that will play or that will make a big impact on how you run your business. And they are often time-consuming, repetitive, low-value tasks. Just start there. Approach it in a common-sense way. Start small. And look at, and I think we're going to touch on vendors and platforms, look at the right technology. A lot of people on this webinar already have the technology that they need. You're just not using it. If you use the Microsoft suite of tools um, and there are others, you can already automate a lot of things. You don't need to be a computer engineer, just figuring out how to do some of these automated uh, kind of appointments and stuff like that. So use common sense. What are the things that's taking up time that you wish somebody else could do? Look at automating some of those things, Mike. And then it sets you free. And that's, again, taking the robot out of the human. Because some people might say, I wish I could spend 80% of my time in high-value client meetings, empowered with the predictive analytics to really help them. You can get there. Why figure out how long it's going to take to drive somewhere and what documents you need to take with you and what the documents say? I hope that makes sense. I said a lot. <laughs> so I call it the completeness check. And I suppose we could go through many, many examples. But... Uh, the completeness check for me is take this meeting I had with the client and summarize it and make sure I cover all the actions. And you may have discussed something, you know, tangentially, which, which then actually is quite important to the client. And following up with the answer a, a day or a week, whenever you get it uh, later, it's that personal touch and reminder which cements that client relationship. I guess I'm also looking forward to, as part of this completeness check, is identifying blind spots. So one of the valuable criteria for having a financial advisor is that they hold up a mirror to the client and they say, objectively, this is where I see some of your um, problems might be. Whether it's your spouse has running their own business and they don't have any income protection, as an example, I think in the future, AI might be able to, using the client circumstances, much better highlight those blind spots, which which perhaps an advisor and client might miss in the meeting. Absolutely. So, Again, that goes back, Mike, to pattern recognition and it's how we set them up. But there will be things that we miss that we don't see. And just to give you an example on what I do with some of my meetings. So obviously, I ask a client, can I audio record it on my phone or I've got a little recording device? There are many platforms. I use one called Otter, otter.ai, which transcribes it quite accurately. And then I take that text into ChatGPT and I say, summarize this chat and or this conversation. Give me highlights of follow-up actions. As long as the audio quality is good and the pronunciation is fairly understandable, that's just an easy way for me to do it. And then you can automate certain actions. The, the point is you don't want to use all these different platforms. So how do you bring it together? How can I take that audio recording, put it into my laptop and the summary, the actions, everything already happens for me. I think we are going to get to that place where one platform or an ecosystem of platforms could potentially do all of that for us. Remember, everyone, it's it's increasingly a powerful technology. It's not smarter than humans yet or for the foreseeable future. Approach it in a common sense uh, way. Look at the things that common sense and small changes in your business can fix and rather jumping on this AI bandwagon. 
the importance of humans and your clients are much more important than technology. This technology, if approached in the right way, can greatly benefit your business. But don't, you know, resign your common sense because it's called AI. You are much smarter than it. And where we're going to go in the future, we're going to have to grapple with as a society. But for now, I think there's a lot more to be excited about than to be fearful of. Thank you, Mike. Brilliant. Thank you, Han, for joining us on this uh, interesting journey and whirlwind tour of, of artificial intelligence and the world of financial advice. Um, and I guess let's just remember that while a jazz musician improvises and a Swiss watchmaker maintains precision, uh, together they can create something truly unique and delightful. And I suppose that's our goal. Um, and so just to conclude, just remember, uh, audience, if you took four notes today, it's demystify, disaggregate, dispel the myths and risks, acknowledge the real ones, and then decide where you can take action in your practice and hopefully um, blend that personal touch with the precision uh, of automation. So giving your clients the best of both worlds. Uh, thank you, everyone, for this enriching journey. And uh, until next time, goodbye. And that's a wrap on this episode of Connect the Dots. Stay tuned for forthcoming episodes where we continue to share valuable insights, expert perspectives and innovative strategies to help you navigate the ever-changing financial landscape. Until next time, I'm Georgina Smith and this is Connect the Dots. Innate is a registered trademark of Stanlib Wealth Management Pty Limited, an authorised financial services provider. Innate is a registered trademark of Stanlib Wealth Management Pty Limited, an authorized financial services provider.